Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. This is Doing It for Bartolo. Today on the show, we have Will Leach, the founding editor of Deadspin. Uh, Will is currently uh, a columnist for Sports on Earth, and he also covers politics for Bloomberg, and he also writes about movies and reviews movies for The New Republic in both writing and podcast form. Will was nice enough to join the show, and we had a pretty interesting discussion about just not only the founding of Deadspin, but the the intersection and the the growth of the internet in its role and its role in uh, in changing sports journalism and journalism as a whole. And uh, uh, Will was was very kind to join the show, and uh, I hope you guys do enjoy our conversation. Uh, just to get some housekeeping out of the way, uh, make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you consume your podcasts. Uh, make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes uh, if you so choose. Uh, it really does help get out the word about the show. And if you feel so compelled, please share the show with a friend. Uh, tell a friend if you guys enjoy this interview or any of our past interviews as well. Uh, and and thank you guys for, for being such a great support of the show as well. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy the uh, the conversation I have with Will. So without further ado, this is uh, Will Leach of Deadspin and Sports on Earth and Bloomberg and The New Republic. I uh, hope you guys enjoy our conversation. Uh, on the show this week, we have uh, Will Leach of many places now. Uh, Will, how's it going? How's it going, man? Thanks for, uh, thanks for lowering your standards enough. I know I understand how it goes. You run out. It's hard to do a regular podcast. You, know, you get guys like Buster Olney, you get like these big shot guys, but you like then you feel the pressure to keep doing a show, even if you don't have necessarily a guest of quality to the nature that you become accustomed. So I apologize for lowering that level now, and hopefully I will make up for it by being short. <laughs> um, for me, like I, I'm, I'm somebody who reads Deadspin almost religiously. I, I'm on Deadspin every day, so. Uh, I would not say that that you uh, fall short of of the uh, pantheon of people that I want to have on the show. That's all. That, that see, that's the thing though. That that's the that's the trick. That's how I've gotten away with it. Is <laughs> uh, because I uh, I left that place eight years ago, but I still get credit for what they're doing every day, even though I'm just like, yeah, that's pretty good. They're doing good stuff over there, and then I people like you thank me for it. I'm like, hey, you're welcome, America. Even though I'm just watching like everybody else is. So you're just like an internet comic. Basically. Yeah, yeah, minus the comment. I'm just some <laughs> internet guy. So, uh, but yeah, so of course I'm. I'm Will Leach is a concept of the internet. Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm a creation. I'm actually deep within the matrix. <laughs> um, so I mean, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, I just, I mean, I just wanted to kind of get to go back and, and talk about uh, uh, your kind of rise into internet. Uh, internet dumb and then uh, and your writing and, and how you got into that so and you, you grew up in Illinois uh, when at what point did you kind of get interest in maybe pursuing a career in writing oh I really never really knew how to do anything else I wanted to be a baseball broadcaster when I was a little kid uh, I wanted to be Jack Buck actually really badly and then I realized that uh, I was too ugly to be on TV and stammered too much and talked too fast as listeners of this podcast can now attest to do any actual broadcasting and then I realized pretty quickly all I wanted to do was write uh, you know pretty much from as far as I can remember I remember writing <laughs> like a story inspired by uh, 
listening to Appetite for Destruction when I was like 13 and think and like uh, all I wanted to do was just write and and you know so for me I knew I wanted to being sports doing sports was not actually something I wanted to do I love sports and I still love sports but you know I wanted to write about movies Roger Ebert was my hero growing up he was mm -hmm. also from central Illinois like I was so I looked to him I wanted to be a film critic I wanted to write about politics I wanted for me sports was a fun was one of my favorite leisure time activities, but never something I took all that seriously as a career. And one of the main reasons for that was because when I was in college at the University of Illinois, I was up in the press box uh, covering the team for the Daily Illini, and I looked around and saw how miserable everyone was up there. And I thought, okay, well, forget that. I want to actually enjoy what I do, and so I'm not going to be a sports reporter because those guys uh, seem miserable. So, uh, And it was all guys, by mm -hmm. the way. And so, you know, one of the... Uh, so I feel like that helped me when I did a, I eventually uh, kind of stumble into writing about sports is it made sure that no matter what happened, you know, I, I was not going to get into a situation where I started to hate sports. Uh, for me, sports is one of it's, you know, it, it provides me legitimate joy uh, in my life as a fan and as an observer. So I wanted to make sure if I wrote about sports professionally, I did it in a way that made me still like it. Mm hmm. What I mean, so you you went to the University of Illinois. Did you? I mean, were you still kind of pursuing only the the film stuff at that point? I mean, like yeah, I was. I mean, I was. I I mean, I was in college. I was pursuing you know drugs and girls. <laughs> but uh, but I also, in a theoretical sense, I was. Uh, I knew I, I I was I was using writing as a way to try to keep those things. Um, and so yeah, so I, I wanted to write certainly, but you know. I, I didn't know, you know, you're in college. Like you, you, you guys are much more ambitious than I than we were back then. The idea of being careerist enough to think about what you're going to do after college was kind of uncool. The whole idea was that you're like, whatever, like I'm just going to be true to myself. That's all that matters. And mm -hmm. so, um, which led to a lot of people being unemployed for five or six years and saying, screw it, becoming lawyers and then hating their lives. But anyway, <laughs> so um, not to put to find a point on it, uh, insert everybody I know from college. But I would say that... Uh, that I knew I wanted to write. So when I graduated, I actually took. There used to be a thing called You, the National College Magazine. People old enough as me will remember this. It was inserted inside college newspapers, and they had a fellowship program where they took like four of the top college journalists, and they went out. And we all lived together in Los Angeles and worked together for a year. And I went out there, and I went there just to write about movies and uh, to work on that. And um, after that one year, I couldn't find any jobs, so I went to work for the Sporting News. Uh, and moved back to the Midwest and worked for the Sporting News. And while I was there, a friend of mine named Andy Wong, who now uh, works for the New York Post, uh, and I, he worked there at the Sporting News. We were both very ambitious, and we were both very excited about the Internet because no one was really doing anything on that. I had no particular notion of, oh, the Internet is such a place for – uh, limitless, po limitless possibilities. Imagine all these things we can do. I was just like, well, I can write as long as I want. That's amazing. I don't have to have, have anything cut. I can just write really whatever I have to say. I can just write it and sure. it'll go up. It's amazing. So we started a site called Iron Minds and that site got kind of big. Uh, and by kind of big, I think maybe four to 500 people a week read it, which is pretty big in 1998. And it ended up getting bought uh, by a, one of those hot dot coms that moved me to New York. So we moved to New York. That place went under after about three months and then I spent about five years un unemployed mm -hmm. so so that was that, that was my that was answering phones to the doctor's office and folding envelopes for a living for temp agency so that is uh the career path I uh, ended up uh taking is not one I would recommend but I do think that 
the key thing was I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to write. I didn't know if it was going to be about uh, movies or about politics or about sports or anything, but I knew I wanted to write. So I spent all of that time when I was answering phones to the doctor's office and, uh, and, and uh, stuffing envelopes, you know, writing for free for, that nobody saw uh, and, no one was free and nobody paid me for, uh, but getting better. You know, sure. that was a, I wrote a column called Life is a Loser, uh, which is a weekly column that really just got me. It was about my life in a way that I would never write about my life now. But mostly I saw it as a way to get in the rhythm of writing and figure out my voice and get a little better. So if opportunity ever did actually arise, I would be prepared. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, after, after a very long time, by the time I was almost 30 years old, and every single one of my family back in Illinois were like, wow, yeah, our son is the total loser who's ruined everything uh, in his life. Out in, and he's out in some weird city that we don't understand. Um, a site called The Black Table that I had done with A.J. Delorio uh, and Aileen Gallagher and uh, Eric Gillen. Uh, it got a lot of readership, and then Gawker Media had seen it. They liked my stuff. They asked me to do a gambling site. I told them, no, I don't like gambling on sports. I think it's bad for sports, and I like sports too much to be involved with it. But you guys should do a sports site. So I... I mapped out this somewhat infamous now, like 15-page memo, give it to Lockhart Steele, uh, who, ran, who started Curbed and Eater and is now at uh, Vox. And uh, he said, great, this is a really good idea, uh, and you're really cheap. So we <laughs> did this for six months, and, uh, and then uh, after it inevitably fails, maybe you'll have a clip or something. Mm-hmm. And that became Deadspin. And uh, it took off, I think, a lot faster than anyone thought I was going to. But the key thing I thought was I was ready. I think if I would have been you know, 21 or 22 or 23 or younger uh, and less uh, experience and less having my ass kicked <laughs> uh, by, uh, by my, and less, you know, I feel like if I would have had a lot of success at 22, I would have thought I was hot. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the time I'd had 10 years of my career telling me, nope, you're not, nobody cares. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so by the time that Deadspin with the opportunity that I had kind of stayed in the game, hoping to get something like that, by the time it came, I was ready and mm-hmm. I took it seriously. And mm-hmm. I think that, that made a big difference. But the real difference was people were ready for a site like this, but I don't think it was my particular brilliance. I don't think everyone was like, wow, what a genius. Let's go see what Will Leach has to say. I, I really don't think it was that at all. I think people, people were ready for a site like that. The time was right, and I was just kind of lucky to get there first. When you were in the doctor's offices and, you know, unemployed, how, I mean, how did that kind of shape your, your writing? Or, or, I mean, how did you keep yourself motivated just to keep going when you're living oh. in New York and you're unemployed like that? Oh, I mean, to me, that I always encourage everyone to be unemployed and have to <laughs> to uh, to be unemployed and totally failing. It is a great motivator, or it is a great nope. I don't care enough to do this, <laughs> and I think that that is you know that that is uh, for me. You know, I knew I used to always have this talk with AJ uh, Delario, who took over Desmond for me, and then ran Gawker, and I think you know, a lot of people know AJ. Um, he and I, you know, he's the best man at my wedding. He and I are old, old friends. But we also one of the reasons that we were so close is because we were unemployed and struggling and ter- and totally failing together. And we had this long conversation one time, being like, "Listen, will we keep doing this if we're like fifty years old and like our parents died thinking our pa- our children are total failures and um, and ev- and everything we've we've ever worked for just never happened? Would we keep doing it?" And we're like, "Yeah, like that, that's to me that was that being." The problem with being motivated, like it was the opposite of that. I was really motivated because when you're doing a dead end job, uh, and I don't mean I don't mean that like not to say that that's not uh, uh, there's nothing wrong with that profession. I just knew it's not what I wanted to do, sure. and um, so I wanted to get out of it. And so for me, that gave me all the motivation I needed. It made me take it seriously. I wasn't like, you know, when I first moved to New York or when I first wanted to be a writer, I just loved to call myself a writer. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm a writer. What'd you do? I wrote a blog post. There's something romantic about being a writer. 
Yeah, but like it's not actually romantic at all. <laughs> and uh, and for me, that is that that transition of realizing it's just a job. You know, my dad's an electrician. My mother is a nurse. They work. Uh, I consider my work building a shelf. I don't think I'm some special snowflake. I don't think I'm some artiste. I think I am someone that have I have written off enough and regularly enough that I have some basic degree of proficiency. And I like to think that I. Uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about the things I write about, so uh, hopefully I can make some sense out of it and write in a way that is accessible to people. But I do not consider myself, you know, everybody has that moment where you're like, oh, I'm totally not David Foster Wallace. <laughs> I'm just not. And, and I'd love to be that person, but I'm not. And so for me, that realization was just part of growing up. And so that helped me a lot in that by the time the opportunity came in Deadspin, I knew that about myself and I knew like, you know what I'm not going to screw this up because this is an opportunity I'm not going to be a diva I'm not going to feel like I'm not going to be this demanding person I'm just going to do this the way that I know I can do this well and do it that way so for me you know I hear this a lot from people from a lot of young writers being like oh man I'm 25 I'm 26 years old and, and I'm doing something I don't like and I'm really losing faith in the industry and like and to me you should have the exact opposite reaction to that. If you are in a situation that you are unhappy with, that is an incredible motivator. Like that's a great situation to be in because you're not actually stuck. Like you actually can make things happen. This, to me, this is where there's somewhere to go. There's somewhere to go, and and you know, and I get it. It's very discouraging. I was discouraged to say the least. If you read some of those old Life Is a Loser columns, it's just some asshole white dude bitching and moaning <laughs> i know that now and uh, uh and but at the time you know certainly i was very discouraged at the time but i wasn't going to just sit around and just wait for something to happen and so for me i thought i can't control whether someone hires me i can't control whether i catch a break but what i can control is to make myself better and to be and if opportunity does ever come to be prepared for it, and, I, and fortunately for me, though I could be listen, I could be in, uh, entering my forties here in the next few years, and having never caught my break, and still being like, "Nope, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming." It would be really depressing, mm -hmm. but uh, I was willing to do that, and I, I almost feel like you kind of have to be. Was it during this time that you kind of found your perspective or your, your voice? I feel like I don't know if it, I don't I don't know what I I used to use that term a lot more often, like oh I found my voice and I got to sure. figure it out. For me, it's really. I no longer got self-conscious about writing. I don't understand writer's block. I don't understand being self-conscious about it. Uh, to me, that I used to. I used to really struggle. I would sit down and see the blank page and get terrified and not know how I was going to fill it and and have all the anxieties and worries that a lot of people have. And then I was, and now I'm just like, just shut up and work. <laughs> and that is how I feel about it. And and that took years of of getting over myself and getting over. Um, you know, I think that's been helped with that because I was writing like 40 posts a day. Uh, so, you know, the whatever brilliant thing you wrote, whether, no matter how brilliant it is, it's going to be forgotten in, in the 24 hours, which I think was good for me. It helped me uh, merge that kind of um, almost factory-like construction with what I with what what I was starting to develop and understand were my personal standards of what I was good at. And, and what I was able to accept. And so that helped a lot. But yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I, I'm lucky. Like, I'm lucky. And, but for me, I, I feel like I have to be relentless about it. The minute that I'm like, all right, got it, awesome. That's when you're just some old hack. Being, that's when your album, 
you know, and that's when you're like, look at me, I made it. I don't have to do any work anymore. And I, to me, that's the opposite of what, like, first of all, I don't think I've made anything. And secondly, I, I, you know, you have to constantly be motivated. And for me, I, all I've ever wanted to do are write about the things that I care about um, from an angle that I feel comfortable writing about them, from an outsider angle. That was always the idea of Deadspin. I have no interest in, like, this. I've, you know, I've written stories for GQ, I've written stories for Deadspin, I've written for, stories for lots of places where you get, like, an exclusive interview or so on. But to me, like, I find that, like, I'm, I'm terrible at selling stories because I hate that. I think it's fake. <laughs> I hate the, no, I hate, I hate the way headlines are written now. I hate the way, I, I don't like, it always feels like we're selling emptiness rather than meat, and um, which I guess we all, I guess in a way we're all selling an existential emptiness. <laughs> but uh, uh, certainly, uh, but you know, for me it is fun to, you know, like today, literally just today, uh, when we, well, before we did this podcast, this morning um, Apple came out with its big fight against, you know, this is fight against the... Uh, the San Bernardino... Yeah, San Bernardino thing. And basically what happened was, you know, they came out with this thing, and within minutes, Donald Trump was on Fox and Friends, and they asked him about it, and he was like, "I don't like it. Uh, Apple should should go ahead and build whatever they have to build, so you can get into that phone just this one time, though." Like it was a nonsense take. Like he had no idea what he was talking about. He had no clue what he was saying. He was just doing what Donald Trump was: be emphatic, be certain, and be resolute, even if you have no idea what the. F- talking about make loud noises basically make loud noises and what happened exactly what you suspect would happen everyone every headline the top story was trump says apple must release that's and and so and for me that is like that's something i see and i'm like why is everyone reacting this way like and I, i know we're all busy i understand that we're all busy i understand we have a lot of there's a lot of information coming at us from a lot of different directions but I feel like my job, if I'm going to take this seriously, is to like take more than five seconds, frankly, take more than the 10 seconds that Donald Trump thought about it, and realize, hey, guys, this is not actually the story. Donald Trump, like the reason Donald Trump is winning is because we don't have the attention span to last longer than, there's this guy that's being louder than everyone else and saying things that no one else is saying, headline, go. And that's why he's winning. Sure. And so for me, you know, uh, maybe it will probably end up being my downfall. But, you know, I, I like to merge the ability. Listen, I, I can write as fast as anybody. <laughs> I write really fast. And, and I like to think it, it's, it's clean and halfway decent. But I also feel like you can, I think what I hopefully bring to the table, and hopefully what I've gotten good at, is to be able to bring thoughtful takes, uh, uh, thoughtful uh, concepts and thoughtful reactions and thoughtful columns, uh, producing it quickly quick amount of time without a lot of fuss and without fighting. Yeah. So that's the goal. Yeah. So when, I mean, you, you, you kind of come from, come from, uh, you know, approach news from this perspective. How, how did that, uh, angle, uh, just kind of way looking at the world affect how you were approaching building that's been at the beginning? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I mean, it was just so obvious <laughs> the sports world was full of crap. <laughs> like it was the example I always use from this is, um, back at the time, you know, before Mike, Michael Vick, before the, the before the dog stuff, uh, you know, he was, you know, the number, the most marketable athlete in the country's most marketable sport, and he there was there were he was the centerpiece of Nike's ad campaign. You could not go anywhere without seeing Michael Vick's face. He was everywhere, and that summer of two thousand five, right before Dead Spin launched. Uh, the Smoking Gun website, which is you know, specializes in big public, public document dumps like this, found that he had been sued by a woman for giving her herpes. And 
while he was getting tested to make sure nobody knew who he was, he went under the name Ron Mexico. <laughs> name Ron Mexico, which to me is hilarious. I mean, how is it not? He used the name Ron Mexico. And so Smoking Gun was a big story. Like it was, a, I mean, you could not miss this thing. And all of my friends that were talking about sports were talking about the Ron Mexico story and talking about this whole big thing. And every sports reporter was talking about Ron Mexico, but no one was writing about it. <laughs> like, no, like ESPN did not have the words Ron Mexico on their site for like two years after it happened. Sports Illustrated had a big cover story uh, going into that into that training camp that year with the Michael Vick. Can he come back? Can he return after this difficult year in so and so's offense? Who even remembers or cares at this point? But and that didn't. And to me, I was like, oh, this this story is going to be about him overcoming this big public national embarrassment of the Ron Mexico thing, and it wasn't even mentioned. And to me, that was astounding to me that this thing that everyone was talking about and everybody obviously knew was going on, but the, there were so few gatekeepers to that. And so like, if you were, if you weren't involved in the internet, (laughs) which was not really coalesced or organized in any sort of major place, uh, certainly in the sports world at that point, you didn't really know about that story. And, you know, one of the things was, I used to be one of those people too. I used to, the only thing I knew about sports is what I saw from ESPN, uh, dot com and SI.com and maybe the old CBS sports line USA uh, dot com back in the day. I only use those small sources in, in my local newspaper. And for me, you know, that was what Deadspin was supposed to be about. It was supposed to be like, I don't care. Like, I, like I, I've not worked for ESPN. I don't think ESPN. Well, I, I noticed I was not like inside the sports business where I didn't, I wasn't really interested in working in sports. And so for me, I just wanted to write about like things I thought were true and funny and sports fans cared about. So that helped, that helped that kind of idea of, you know, there were a, an, an endless fountain, there still are an endless fountain of stories like that. Because one thing that's really nice about sports is sports constantly happens. <laughs> one of the things I find really funny uh, now that I'm doing some politics stuff is political reporters who do great work and I, and I totally respect how much stuff they do. But when there's like an election night, they're like, oh, all hands on deck. There's live results coming in tonight. Everybody, the newsrooms all order pizza and everybody hunkers down in Slack and they all get fired up for this big thing they have going on. Meanwhile, sports people are like, yeah, we do this literally every night. <laughs> like, this is what we do every night. Congratulations. Welcome to the night, to the world of constant breaking news and late deadlines. So, you know, that is, uh, but for me, you know, that, that was the fun part. And it ties into that idea of why I didn't want to be a sports supporter in the first place. Because, you know, I... I wanted sports to be fun, and uh, I'm glad to say 10 years after that's been launched, uh, I still really love sports, and I still love, really love writing about sports, which I take as my own maybe a little private triumph. Mm-hmm. Was there was there a moment when you were you know in the in the gut of things with Deadspin at the beginning where you kind of first saw for, you saw for the first time uh, Deadspin being a gatekeeper affecting how sports was being covered? You know, I noticed that people were starting to pick it up a little bit more. I have a firm rule that I still have, much to the chagrin of everyone I write for still, I'm sure. But I don't want to know traffic numbers. I don't want to know. I wish Twitter didn't have follower counts. I don't understand why we're so obsessed with this kind of dick measuring with, with this. I just, I don't understand. Like if you're, you're either producing good work or you're not. You know, you, I feel like you should tweet and write as if you have either zero followers or 40 million. And I don't, so I don't like to know the numbers, but because there's no numbers that'll make me happy. Woody Allen, my one of my idols, has this has has this whole line about this, but like you can't take you can't get excited about a good review because then you have to get down about a bad review. Like who cares? Like uh, there's no number. Uh, it's why you don't you shouldn't look at your Amazon rating if you write a book. Like there's no number that's going to make you happy, and the only number that can make you sad is like listen, you write stuff too. Anytime that you 
that you get a good compliment, you're like, oh, cool, thanks. But when you get a bad, when you get a, uh, a criticism, it'll like put you down for like hours. Mm -hmm. So you know you have to ignore all of it. So I don't look at traffic numbers. I, I just don't. And so even then, I didn't. And I, I think I basically told Lockhart back in the day, who was my boss, I was like, listen, just let me know if I'm not getting enough traffic that you're going to fire me. <laughs> just let me know and if and don't tell me the numbers don't tell me if i'm up from yesterday or down from yesterday or what stories i hit or any of that just to, like if if i'm if i'm not getting enough hits to the site that it's not worth your expense to do it and you think the site is failing just let me know give me one warning and then if it doesn't work again you can go ahead and fire me and because that's to me that's I, I can't control like i every way that to me that people control the way that traffic goes up and down, I have to tell you, frankly, feels like cheating. <laughs> it feels like lying. It feels like tricking people into into reading something that they wouldn't or, or uh, that they that they wouldn't ordinarily. It feels like Trumpism. It feels like Trump says something, <laughs> and now and we all run to it. And I just don't. I, and I listen. I recognize this makes me out of step a little bit uh, in the way that that things run now, and that's okay. I, I'm happy to occupy my little niche while I can. I'm trying to. I'm happy to outrun time as long as I can until it catches up with me. But uh, and I certainly hope that people. I, I I don't think my stuff is like ignored, but certainly you know I I just never wanted to know. So I didn't really know a lot of that in the early days. I started to notice when I uh, when media people started wanting to talk to me about the site that was probably when i first noticed but you know it was such a hard thing to construct i mean i was writing like crazy all day every day sure. i really didn't have a like there was no promotions budget there was no i didn't go to message boards be like hey check out this new site i was frankly too busy building the thing because i recognized very quickly that i love doing it <laughs> and uh, and i and to have that kind of channel and vessel uh was exciting and so i one of the reasons i actually had to leave deadspin was i was starting to love it too much and you know, I was starting to not challenge myself as much as I should. I was starting to obsess over it in a way that I suspected was unhealthy. And I think that you can, you, if you see all the people that eventually burned out from running that stuff, you can perhaps see why. And I, I, I you know, but for me, you saw certain stories, like you know, you saw you, you would see certain people talking about stories. I remember one time I broke the news that Matt Lawton, who's an old Minnesota Twins baseball player, had been busted for steroids. I just got a tip about it and I put it up. And I was like at my crappy apartment in New York and like sitting at my desk typing like I always had. And then I like looked up at ESPN News and all of a sudden it was on the crawl. I was like, whoa, that's weird. <laughs> my computer made the TV happen. So, um, but that was, you know, I really try to stay out of the idea of, of metrics and knowing. You could tell just from the response of emails I was getting, or once we added comments, we didn't have comments at first, you know. So, um, which is kind of a deadspin staple now. Yeah, and I hated. It. I did not want anything to do with comments. I wanted nothing. I was totally wrong, by the way. But uh, I did not want anything to do with comments because this was mine. You know, this was my break. This was the thing that I wanted, and it turned out they turned out great, and it turned out to be a staple of the site. And and I like to think it's because there was a certain bar for uh you know back in the day the only people that were allowed to comment were people that had personally sent me emails explaining why they were funny and could be trusted to comment <laughs> so um so what i like to think was was part of the reason that, that it was that it was okay uh, but also spoke to how deadspin was eventually going to have to change because deadspin you know one of the reasons i left is it was you know deadspin needed to be bigger than a niche site in the way i was running it it was always going to be a niche site because you know there would be stories that i would just ignore cuz i thought they were stupid <laughs> and and uh, uh like like i'll put it this way if i would have been running deadspin 
during the, like the Deflate Gate story, I would have run like one or two pieces. I mean, like seriously, this story is stupid. I'm not talking about this anymore. <laughs> Which is probably not how you should run a site in a traffic age. So, um, so, uh, but I do. I'm sorry. I think that story was completely stupid, and we should all be embarrassed that we we made such a big deal out of it. So for me, yeah, yeah. So so for me, that is. That was uh, always going to be a ceiling <laughs> to my uh, to my time running Deadspin. And to me, that's why I joked at the beginning of the podcast. It's always been to my benefit that AJ and Tommy and Marchman have made, and and you know now all the great writers working there, from Tom Lee to Greg Howard to to uh, Albert Burnecco to to everybody else over there uh, to Dan Maskeritz, and uh, like they do such a good job. And I feel like I get this tan- this side benefit from it. But you know they're the ones that made it big. I always uh, you know if if. If if the guy, you know, it's funny, but like the guy that took over, the, when AJ took over for me, he was actually co-editors with, I don't know if you even know this, with Clay Travis. Wow. Oh, Clay I mean, Travis, I think I read that a couple days ago. Yeah. Clay Travis was actually co-editor of Deadspin when I left. And AJ recognized immediately that Clay was stupid. They <laughs> 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 got rid of him uh, pretty quickly. And, um, but like, imagine, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, but like, Either I don't know if Clay would have run that site into the ground if he would have won their little battle because I think it probably would have become probably pretty popular. I think Clay certainly has shown he's willing to be as shameless as possible to get a large number of people uh, to read him and to get a lot of attention and more power to him. There are literally thousands of people that do that. That makes Clay no different than anybody else. But uh, I'm glad Deadspin didn't go that direction. And um, But if someone else would have taken over the site and run into the ground or made nobody read it anymore or or market forces would have came and made Deadspin irrelevant or so on, uh, I would not get any tangible benefit of that today. So I'm very lucky and I'm very I'm very happy and blessed and honored by, by a lot of the stuff that Deadspin does now. But uh, I, I certainly... In the same way that uh, I, uh, I, you know, listen, I read stuff on Deadspin now. Sometimes I'm like, yep, that's not the way I would have done that, which is probably means they're doing something right. Mm-hmm. How do you, I mean, not looking at traffic numbers, I think is super interesting. And uh, especially given, like, for me, I'm, I mean, I'm a 20 year old kid and I've, I've grown up in the age of like, you know, we need this traffic, you know, we need, uh, you know, expand your Twitter following, expand your brand, all that, all that nonsense, basically. Um, how do you think, not participating in that, I mean, in your words, dick measuring contest has affected your how you write or approach the stories. It doesn't affect it. Uh, it's probably going to end up making me unemployed. <laughs> to be entirely honest, not, not specifically with Sports Earth. I'm very happy there, uh, and, and I, I don't mean that. And certainly, I write for a lot of places. But I recognize, I listen. There's one or two ways this is going to work out. Either I'm right, and we're all being idiots about caring about this. Like the, to me, the problem is we started letting advertising and money people into the room. We used to never let those people into the room. They like when I remember when AJ took over Deadspin. Uh, he called me about three months after. He's like, "Will, how did you ever deal with these advertising people? I mean, what did you even like? They're on my case all the time." I'm like, "AJ, I literally have never met one of them. <laughs> I don't know what they look like. I don't know what their names are. I had nothing to do with that. My job was to produce a site. Their job was to sell it. And the minute that we we all of a sudden put that on the the people creating." Uh, and the people creating the content saying, nope, now all of a sudden you have to sell yourself. Uh, and we're going to still profit as much as we always have, but now you have to do it and we're going to pay you less. The minute that we let the people involved in things other than what a reader would actually want, 
like what your theoretical reader would actually want and what would benefit them as opposed to, you know, I used to always joke, this is how old Deadspin is. I used to always joke, that, like, listen, if you want me to put Britney Spears pantsless in the headline of every goddamn piece, the site's going to be really popular. It's also going to be horrible. And you can, I'm sure you can find plenty of people that will do that for you. And so for me, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I don't understand. I'll put it this way. You know, I, I'm a smart guy. You're a smart guy. There's lots of smart people that work in sports. I would like to think I'm a smart guy. Yeah, I've, you're a smart guy. And there's lots of smart people that work in sports. All of them are smart enough to have perhaps worked in other fields that would pay them more money, right? Like, certainly, you know, like, I'm a smart guy. If I, if I were, like, some Wolf of Wall Street asshole, uh, I probably could go into another field and make a lot of money because I think I'm a generally pretty smart guy. I could probably figure out how to do that system. But I didn't do that. I chose not to do that. I chose to write for a living and to, and to write about sports and to write about movies and write about politics. So the minute that I start doing things just to make – just to just – to, like, oh, more people, come look at me. Come look at me. Give me more money. Make me do this. The minute I start doing that, I'm selling out everything that I got into the business to do in the first place. Mm-hmm. So I don't understand why someone would go into writing or go into or to web production or to go into anything involving putting your name on something and giving it out to the world to say, I made this thing. Do you like it? I don't understand why the – like, don't – like, I don't understand why people care. <laughs> like, I, listen, everybody wants their stuff to be read. I, I would like as many people to read my stuff. But, like, if that's actually my judge of it, my gauge of its value, then I should go be a banker. I should go be a Wall Street guy because I, I literally don't understand it. I, I don't. And I, you're right. You're right. I think, I think that uh, uh, if you're uh, people your age, um, you know, I was when I was your age, we were all still in Gen X, you know, slacker mode. You know, we the idea of selling out was like the most embarrassing thing you could possibly do. And um, and most people grow out of that, I suppose. And uh, and I did not. But certainly I don't understand if you're in a creative field and you are just doing things to get as many followers as possible or to extend your personal brand or to make a lot of money for your corporate bosses, I don't understand why you went into a, corporate, into a creative field. You could have done so many other things and made yourself more money. So mm-hmm. that, that's my philosophy. And listen, that's why I mean I'll probably ultimately be doomed, but uh, hopefully I'll, I'll stay ahead of the Reaper as long as I can. I mean, Deadspin was kind of at the forefront of blogs becoming big. Uh, did you Did you see kind of, analyzing um journalism as an industry uh, a shift to- like did you see that tangible shift happen at, at a certain point i i saw once you saw it at deadspin a little bit uh uh you can see it coming i think that's probably true you can see it coming i didn't think it would get quite to this i didn't think it like the actual quality of something would just not matter at all <laughs> i didn't actually see that coming but i think you know i mean honestly i feel like that is uh, and I, that's not exactly true but you know, certainly the idea of um, like like the idea that a, like a twelve hundred word piece uh, about something smart and important that people should know about would be classified as some sort of like good for you vitamin hashtag long read is a little baffling to me. I will confess. <laughs> I will confess. I, I don't understand that. And and um, and I, if that puts me on the wrong side of history, I'm actually okay with that. But yeah, you saw that coming. You saw that coming. And I don't even say that. Like, listen, I get it. Everything is a business. I'm not claiming this is not an art project. Like, I understand all of that. But I do think that there is something like, like, I listen. 
look at those barstool sports dips, okay? Those guys are just in it. Like, if you, if you, like, those people can always do that. If you want to do that, go do barstool sports. Be completely shameless and do whatever the hell you want and talk about boobs and, 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 and be assholes. That's fine. There's always going to be a market for that. If you want to do that, I'm glad you fill that market so I don't have to. But certainly when I see smart people debasing themselves for the sake of their brand, uh, I find that distressing. I won't lie to you. I find that distressing. Have you seen that happen more recently? Yeah, to be honest. Yeah, I have. And, uh, um, and listen, I, I'm, not, I'm, I, I'm not trying to be like the Puritan here. I do the, like, you know, I mean, I, I don't really care about going on television, but I recognize that if I go on television and do stuff, I'll be more likely to be able to continue to write, which is what I want to do. So sure. certainly I'm not trying to act like I, I'm, I'm in some sort of vacuum here where I just, uh, uh, you know, I just uh, uh, dance merrily along and, and don't partake. I still think I'm, you know, I'm involved in this stuff. This is what I do. You know, I care about the, the business. And, I, and listen, one thing that's exciting for me is as a consumer, it is wonderful because there's still great stuff being – as someone that consumes and reads all this stuff, I can't – like there's just so much good stuff. Think about the Grantland thing. Like everyone got so upset. Oh, no. What does this mean that Grantland has gone down? Well, it means now there are two places. <laughs> Where there is The Ringer and there is MTV News. Plus now Jonah Carey is at CBS. Like, like it's not like these writers went away or the quality of their work right. went away. And so there's so much – you know, I, I, I don't want to sound doomsday about this because I'm not, I'm not doomsday about it uh, I, because I think that there's so much good work being produced by so many smart people. But I also think that, um, that uh, so as a consumer, it's like a wonderful time to be, to be able to do this stuff. But I also think that, you know, we all try to need to remember the North Star on this stuff and, and try to remember uh, what we're doing and why we're doing it. And, and uh, ultimately, you know, this is why. Listen, it didn't take me very long at all to turn into, you know, cranky old guy complaining about what the kids are doing. I have no, and I understand, like, I, I, I agree. And, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. Like, I look at, like, to me, like, you know, you look at someone, a great example of someone who's young and, 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 and hit and into whatever and, and uh, smart about this stuff, but also, I think, doing it with a certain uh, integrity and pride. Look at someone like Seth Rosenthal at SB Nation. He is involved in their social team. Yeah, like Seth is the best. And uh, he used to do some work, work for us in New York Magazine. And he's young and he's exciting and he's vibrant. And he's like a totally, really smart guy. And I never read su su something Seth writes. I'm like, oh, man, like, you sell out. Like, who gives a shit about this gift? Like, I don't. I don't think, I don't think that from Seth. Uh, well, I'm still, like, I still feel enlightened from the work that he does. While, I, while also he is still playing the game by the rules sure. of the, on, on, the, on the board right now. So I respect him for that. I'm not saying that like nobody does that because I think Seth is a great example of someone who does. But I do think that it like, I think part of that too is because Seth didn't like, Seth is not just trying to get his follower count up. He's not trying to expand his brand. He genuinely loves this stuff. Right. He genuinely loves this stuff and he'll do the things that allow him to continue to be able to write about this stuff. But that is not like the ultimate goal is to continue to be involved in this thing that you love, not to get your numbers up. And I think that sometimes that can get lost a little mm -hmm. But I think something from my perspective as someone who is, you know, I like, I have, well, I've only really written for, the internet like i've had a couple internships and i'll be interning at the the post this summer which is a newspaper obviously but like i've never had a word count and the i mean the internet is obviously a place where um the internet's obviously a place where where uh you know people fish for hit counts and stuff but uh it's it's also a place where 
people have the opportunity to rise out of nowhere. Like, who am I to, to have, you know, whatever Twitter following I have and have people read what I read and have people listen to these podcasts? Like, like who am I to do that? I haven't even finished college. Like, what is – I feel like there's, uh, there's obviously awesome. a trade-off there. Oh, yeah, and I agree. And, like, look at, like, you know, to me, that is very exciting. And I'm not saying everyone needs to go sit and write 1,500-word think pieces and that's the way things should be. <laughs> like, I, I don't. I, I think, uh, to me, it's very exciting to read all this stuff. And that's what I mean. The problem is not that things are short. The problem is not that that, uh, uh, that the people have a short attention span. The problem is that people are do- a lot of people are doing it for the wrong reasons. Like, like, look at, like, look at, like, for example, network, like the great Twitter, uh, uh network, uh, yeah, Jason Land, of course. And uh, who I met one time and, and I was so excited to meet him. I like hugged him. <laughs> I was so elated and he was just, like, stop hugging me. Strange internet person. Uh, cause I'm such a fan of what he does, but he's not writing these like deep thought, but he's hilarious and he's doing it for the right reasons. He's doing it out of love. He's doing it out of joy for this. And for me, that is the point. And so when I see stuff that to me seems created in a more craven fashion. That is what's disappointing. But the idea that like, if you do a bunch of funny, uh, like the idea that if, if, uh, um, I, I, the, I, if you just communicate through funny gifts, as long as your gifts are funny, I don't care. That's great. As long as you're doing it for the right reasons, there's nothing wrong with that. But to me, the fear is, I, 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 creative, I don't want creative people to lose <laughs> is basically what, and I feel like the last 10 years or so we've started to lose a little bit. I still have faith that, you know, the, there will always be your barstool sports people, but I also believe that there are, there are like you see by the evidence of not only Grantland, but like see what they're doing at MTV and see what they're doing at the ringer. And I, th- I think what we're doing at sports on earth and what they're doing in a lot of places, like there is always a market for people who are not, who are trying to do things in a smart, correct, loving way, and uh, and I still I and I still believe that I see, think you still see it. So for me, I I, I don't want to sound like pessimistic or discouraging. I just hope that people that the, the all that matters is not necessarily how you do it or what you do. You just need to do it out of like a love and a real place rather than some uh, sad capitalist uh, corporate place. Uh, having been in the middle of just kind of the the, the divide between blogs and print, uh, you had a super fascinating experience on the Bob Costas show with uh, <laughs> with Buzz Bissinger. Uh, obviously, you know a legendary writer. But could you take me back to to how that all started? And I know you you've written about this in the past, but could could you just kind of go back and and, and what do you remember about that that whole uh, sequence of of crazy events? Well, you know, I actually I've never actually watched the video. I did not. I've never seen it. Uh, so whatever, any all responses will have to just come from memories of 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 that long ago. It's been eight years, but maybe eight years in April, if you can believe that. So you know, for me, uh, the reason I never watched it and was the same reason I hated it at the time, <clears throat> because it was very frustrating for me. Because it took something. You know, I don't know if I'm a good writer and I don't know if I'm a smart person. But the one thing I know that I care about is I don't like it when people talk past each other it drives me crazy uh, you know the 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 idea that if someone disagrees with you they're therefore wrong and a trash and and you know the idea that listen i'm a different human being than you are and we are different people so therefore we have different experiences in the world and it doesn't make either one of us assholes and it's weird how 
much of every conversation has become this binary polarized situation and i hate it and i've always hated it and i hated it even when i was at deadspin and this corollary was starting to show up the idea of you either write for blogs or you're a serious journalist and i was like no that's not actually like no that, that doesn't make any sense and and so what was so frustrating about that evening was it took an issue that i was hoping to be able to shed some light on the fact that you know what writing online and writing for print there's literally nothing different except you can write a little longer online. This was back when people wrote longer online <laughs> rather than shorter mm -hmm. online. And so, um, you know, and I, the, the point I, I was really hoping to be able to make that evening before you kind of realize the direction it was going was, you know, that day, you know, I love Buzz Messenger's writing. Uh, I, I've always been, uh, well, I was a fan of Romana fan, though I think, uh, I do. I think I think he's good at what he does. He's a he's a much more empathetic writer than he is maybe a personality. Uh, we'll put it that way. And you know, but for me, there used to be a magazine called uh, Play, the New York Times uh, sports magazine. It was came out it was quarterly. It was very it was very good. Uh, and it, the, it's probably most famous for having uh, David Foster Wallace's piece on uh, Roger Federer. It's yeah. probably its most famous piece. And so you know, when it was out. Uh, the very the issue that was on stands that exact week that that show was on on page 13 buzz bisinger had a short profile of someone on page 14 i had a short essay <laughs> like we were literally on opposite pages from one another <laughs> and sure we obviously took different routes to get to that point but the idea that there was this you are like this and you are wrong and you are like this and you are wrong. It was exactly what I was hoping to avoid and frankly, exactly what I thought someone like Bob Costas, who is generally thought of as this fair-minded, at least nuanced, was. was. I certainly I don't think he's thought of as nuanced anymore. Well, you, I, think, I mean, it has, it has a legacy of being nuanced. Yeah, but I think it's a legacy that's been destroyed in the last 10 years. I've never, I've never seen... Uh, if you can find nuance in his halftime commentaries, please and let me know when you see it. Uh, to me, you know that that was what was frustrating about that. Not even so much Buzz, because you know Buzz is Buzz. You know Buzz. I you know one of the sad things about that is that Buzz is you know he's a wonderful writer, and but he'd never really been known as much of a television presence. He wasn't like on shows. He you know I I, I read all of his books and I didn't even know what he looked like. I'd never I think I heard him interviewed a couple of times, but I certainly didn't know anything about personality. And so then that show happened, and it began, you know, I knew things were bad when a couple days later I, people were forwarding that clip around that knew nothing about sports and nothing about journalism, but were just going, crazy man goes crazy on TV. And that was when you knew that, it, that the point had entirely been lost, and whatever point he might have had. Mm -hmm. And the problem is after that, I felt like Buzz felt like he needed to be this character. He needed to be this guy, and I think it hurt his writing. I think it hurt his career, and frankly, I think it hurt him personally. And so, I've never really blamed Buzz for that. I've always, frankly, blamed Costas. Uh, you know, I think he knew he knew who Buzz was. They had actually worked on a on a um, autobiography together years ago, and it was never published. And so, they knew each other. They were close. And, you know, I actually had met Costas for the first time uh, at, for coffee. I wrote about this uh, in in the paperback version of God Save the Fan. Um, I'd met him for coffee weeks before the show because he never met me i think it was the only person it was you know it wasn't just a media show he had a bunch of different panels and that was the only person he hadn't met and he and and i and i said so i've never met buzz Bissinger. i'm a big fan uh what's he like and he's like oh he's frothing at the mouth for you man he hates blogs i'm like well okay so why is he on again are you and then you realize oh he costa saw him as an attack dog costa saw him as the guy 
to uh, uh, to loudly get across points that Costas himself believed while Costas could stand back and be like, no, what? I'm just trying to spur a conversation. And so for me, you know, uh, if you were to have a negative takeaway from that experience, yeah, I didn't I didn't learn so much uh, that much about Buzz Bissinger as much as I learned about Bob Costas is probably the best way to put that. So um, certainly. Um, you know, I, I, so I, there was, it was certainly in the, in the best interest of both Buzz and I in the weeks following that to, um, I, uh, to maybe pretend to be friends. <laughs> so like we were on a later, in the next episode of the Costas show, there's a, uh, of Costas show, they, there was a shot of us, me wearing a Cardinals hat and him wearing a Phillies hat, drinking beer in the audience. Yuck, 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 yuck. And, uh, so on. But, you know, even then, uh, Buzz and I were, you know, joked that, I I think my joke was that you know currently it's the fifth paragraph of his obituary and the second of mine and it is the in, in the interest of both of us to knock it down as as low as possible. I think he's perhaps had more success with that uh for for better or for worse uh since I have. So you know for me uh, you know I the my problem with it was not how I came across I don't know how I came across it's the you know what people's responses to it uh, I, you know, I really don't know. I didn't. It's funny. John Weissman, the writer for Dodger Thoughts and writes for the Los Angeles Times, uh, he actually sent me a tweet with his piece the other uh, a while back um, that he wrote that night, and I never read because I, I never read any recaps of that night. I really just found it a deeply unpleasant evening uh, across the board, and so it was funny to read some of. It. I'm like, oh wow, I guess people would have written about this back then. <laughs> I just didn't. I really was. So I was on a plane the next day at eight in the morning, and just and uh, you know at that point AJ Delorio was actually working. I was still running Deadspin but he was actually my number two on the site. So he was running the site that day. So I actually didn't even, I missed all of the recap for it. And, um, but to me, I, the thing that was frustrating for me is it turned a interesting, complicated discussion. Hey, the media world is changing. What does this mean for the future? What, what, what is different now? What are, what are we going to have to be doing uh, moving forward? And it turned it into dip stupid cable television and that was entirely Costas's fault and then he tried to pretend like oh I can't believe this thing happened on my show and you know that was very frustrating for me and uh, so and it was frustrating to have th not so much that but just the idea that this interesting discussion uh, that I was hoping to to blunt a little bit with this you're stupid no you're you're inexperienced and just throwing up it's the wild west no you're an old fogey that, that has these stupid outdated notions of journalistic ethics to me I that was a very annoying discussion when I was doing Deadspin, and so I had hoped that that program uh, would help, uh, perhaps naively, certainly naively, probably foolishly, thought that program would help with that, and it just set, sent people to the corners uh, even more. It actually helped start Murray Chass's sad little blog, blog non-blog, uh -huh. <laughs> which I feel personally responsible for now. So um, yeah, that was the frustrating part about that, and so I, I, yeah, I, I, I get asked about it a lot, which is fine, you know. I mean, I, it's you know, I mean. I listen, we've been talking about Deadspin a lot, and I left there eight years ago. So, you know, I'm certainly aware that uh, these are the kind of questions that people uh, are into. And that's fine, but uh, certainly I find it disappointing uh, that of how it went down. And I, I think it's a shame. And I'm glad, frankly, not that many people know about it anymore. I, there was a while, I, one of the saddest things that people told me and I, I, was a lot of people were saying that journalism professors were showing it in their journalism classes, which makes me think that you, like, I'm sorry, if you're a journalism professor that did that, unless the end of it was everybody on this stage is an idiot and you should ignore every, everything that they're saying, you've done a bad job teaching your journalism class. So, because I, I really don't I, don't, I don't think it actually showed anything. I don't think it showed any sort of new 
new school versus old school or gave any sort of enlightenment. It was just dip, dip, stupid yelling on stage while Braylon Edwards tried to get the hell out of there. And oh my god! I, I, if you watch that clip, you just feel for Braylon Edwards. He jumps in. He says one thing at one point, and it's just. And then he just disappears into the. He's, oh. he's like Ben Carson at the debate, basically. My favorite. <laughs> I remember something, and you have to. My remember Costas asking at one point, being like, "So, do you do you read any blogs? No. Do you have any teammates that read blogs? No. All right. Well, let's go back to Buzz, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah, you know, it is. It's fine, and I get it, and it's okay. You know, I, I you know, it's 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 fine, but certainly, it was a long time ago. I feel like, but I feel like since then the the discussion between uh, blogs and online writing and and things in print have, has become much more nuanced. Uh, and I oh, think, well, I, I think it, I think the reason it's become nuanced is if you didn't get with a program, you're not in the industry, right? And, right. And you know that is for me. Yeah, you know, that's just a fact. Like you can't really find anyone anymore who isn't a part of this, for better or worse. You know, and you think about Twitter. Buzz got on Twitter for a while. And it was like, oh, this is why we have editors. <laughs> like, this is why editors are really important. <laughs> and so, you know, I feel that if you, that kind of mindset, and you still see it. Come on, you still see it. You particularly see it. Of in course. The Maybe I, I, I write or read too much about baseball. <laughs> there tends to be more of it in baseball than, uh, than, than perhaps anywhere else. But uh, I think baseball writers also tend to skew older, too. There's still a yeah. lot of legacy people there. There's no question. There's no question. It's, it skews older. It skews wider. Uh, so yeah, I think that's definitely true. But uh, certainly, you know, I'll put it this way: if you still have those thoughts, you're either. I mean, you know, it's funny. I did a piece. Uh, uh, BuzzFeed did a big story on Mitch Album, and uh, the writer Dory Schreier um, uh, interviewed me for the piece about about Mitch Album, and and you know, for me. Because your know, album is one of the last holdouts of the the everything on the internet is stupid and everything and 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 for me you know that speaks more and more a to his privilege the idea that like if you actually you have to actively try to cut yourself off from the world to think that right. <laughs> like you have to have actually not know anything but also it shows you know so much I actually tried to put a, like a sad sadder spin on it because you know listen I don't really like Mitch Albom's writing very mu- writing very much but I don't think that he's a bad person and I you could you sense a, a desire for social justice in his work and an essential fairness even if it's kind of filtered through his uh, sensibility and the problem is if he were able to get away from himself for a second and look at what's actually happening online he would see such support for the things that he fundamentally claims to care for I feel like you know uh, it's it's amazing how quickly that line between I don't like stuff on the internet and everybody and it's chaos and it's madness and it's, and it's the wild west starts to turn into I don't like new voices, which starts to turn into, uh, hey, everything was pretty great for me as a white guy for a long time. Why is everybody yelling at me all of a sudden? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't think there's any question that's the case. You see it, and you see it, frankly, uh, not just in sports. You see it a ton in politics. And I think that I think that, that is – I think to, to have uh, hunkered down in that little kind of bunker situation requires – a denial of reality that it says a lot more now about you than it does about the internet. Mm-hmm. I, I'm really fascinated just from my end uh, as someone who wants, obviously wants to get into the industry, but I've been, I think in this really weird transition period where there's still like some, some legacy print and obviously there's some emphasis on print, but there's also people are getting trained to write online. All of my friends who want to get into journalism are getting their experience just by writing on the internet. 
yeah. and it's not having to to wait for oh it's great and yeah. it's great and to me you know this was one of the things that i was very lucky about too and not just me you know this is how bill simmons got his start he you know that he, he always famously has talked about how you know, I think we, he and I have, have discussed this ourselves before, the idea that, well, oh, yeah, sure, we can go sit and cover, you know, high school field hockey for the Boston Herald for a while and wait for, for Bob Ryan's uh, brother's nephew who got a job through there to retire, and maybe we can get up and cover something interesting, or we can just go on the web and do what the hell we want. And for me, that is very exciting. And that was always one of the, the principles behind Deadspin was the idea that, you know, I'm just do it. Just get out there and start writing. And for me, that I you know, we've discussed this a little bit before, but I do think that is the number one most important thing is, you know, there are nothing frustrates me more than when someone uh, emails me and says, "Man, I just can't catch a break. I can't. No, I, I just, I, I just look and I feel like I should be getting something. I'm not. Well, you have to go do it. Like you just have to. Like there are so many opportunities to just go out there and do it. Now, like, come on. I mean, look at you, man. I mean, how did I? I mean, I, I you didn't like send me a resume that got folded up the chain. And then I found your work, and now we're talking on a podcast. And I follow you on Twitter. We have these discussions. I just saw something funny that you did, and I saw some work that you did. And I was like, okay." This is this guy is now someone who I'm going to be paying attention to, and if you, and there was and I would have never found you and the other people that are talking to you and and that read your stuff, they wouldn't have found you if if you would have just sat around being like, why isn't anybody finding me? Mm-hmm. And to me, that that's that that's how it's done. And if you're not proactive that way, then there's no place for you in the business anyway. So I was not you specifically. Yeah. So I was listening to um, a podcast yesterday with uh, on Kirk Manahan's podcast uh, with Dan Shaughnessy and they were talking about kind of the rise of of people getting opportunity on the internet and I thought you know amongst uh, amongst a, a variety of points that I didn't necessarily agree with I thought Shaughnessy made an interesting point about how lots of young people like me um, not and maybe not necessarily in the same position as me but there are people who uh, want to be the poor man's Bill Simmons and are basically only writing their hot take columns on whatever is going on in sports that doesn't necessarily differentiate themselves in any way. And I feel as if um, I, I thought it was a good point in that uh, he was kind of talking about how a lot of a lot of young writers, because they think they can be the next Simmons or think they, they're funny enough or talented enough as Bill to, to write in a way where they feel as if they have an interesting perspective on things, but they don't necessarily have developed it to the point to to stand out in any way, shape, or form, and aren't developing as writers as a result. I mean, I think that's probably that's probably true for for some people. Uh, I think that if you're not good enough to do it, and you won't stand out. <laughs> like I, I I know that, and it's funny. This also comes down in a lot of ways to the old: should you write for free or should you not write for free? My general rule on this is: you should not write for free for a big corporation. That uh, uh, I I made I spent the, uh, many many years writing for free. But I never wrote for a big company that was making a bunch of money off my work and not paying me for it. <laughs> like I wrote on my own and did my own thing and got that word out there. And I and I feel like that's a big difference between, uh, um, you know, I know, you have some here's some old school writers being like, don't ever write for free. Well, like write for yourself for free. <laughs> like get better. But uh, but don't but yes, don't go don't go write for a big corporation that's just going to use you and and uh, and tell you you're getting exposure and then profit off what you're doing. I think that's different. But you know, I do think getting back to your your primary point i i think i mean i think that is certainly how people like dan shaughnessy think everyone is writing online i absolutely believe that he thinks everyone is trying to be bill simmons 
I don't think that's actually what's happening. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that actually what it is. I think. I think if you're Dan Shaughnessy, you see online writing as Bill Simmons, and if you're someone that writes online, you see Bill Simmons as this old guy that's been running online for a really long time, and now runs Grantland, and now does, and was on, and had his fight with ESPN, and but you know was f- friends with with uh, the lady from Girls, and all these other things that have apparently happened, and so you know the idea that. Uh, Sure. If you're trying to be frat bro, Boston writer guy, and because you want to be Bill Simmons, you're probably not going to stick out. But I don't think that's actually how people are writing. <laughs> I don't. I think that's how Dan Shaughnessy sees it. So I think, of course, I think people are differentiating themselves in a lot of different ways, in a lot of very smart ways that have nothing to do with Bill Simmons and nothing to do with Deadspin and nothing to do with all of these things. And that, to me, is very exciting. It's exciting for me to see all the different, uh, you know, all the different ways uh, that people are doing things, uh, are, are doing you know, they're, they're finding – like, here, here, here's a great example. Lindsay Adler from BuzzFeed. Buzz, Love Buzz, Lindsay. Buzzfeed. Yeah, yeah, BuzzFeed. Lindsay Adler from BuzzFeed. She is – I mean, first off, she does do some reporting. I don't mean to imply that she doesn't. But she also has found a very unique, smart place in the sports marketplace. She's just, she's just – like, she's done it on her own. Like, sure, now she's with BuzzFeed. But, like, that's something that came – you know, she's she's developed that voice and she has an interesting take on sports that is not your brick and mortar go to the press conference sit at the be a beat reporter she's done that in an entirely different way than bill simmons did it in an entirely different way than i did it and she's done that and she's doing awesome at it, and she's probably something incredibly important to sports but she's not but Dan Shaughnessy would see her as, well, he's not, she's not out there doing the beat reporter way. And she's just no one of those people that's just writing online. And that's wrong. <laughs> like, it's just wrong. And it speaks to how differently I think that, that, uh, how kind of removed, you know, people like that are from the conversation. And listen, I am removed too. Like, I am not 24 years old anymore. There's a level of remove for this for me too. There are times that there, there are certainly things that I see online. I'm like, Ugh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I can't use fleek in a sentence. I'm 40 years old. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. And you know, I, it's certainly, there are things that have, that have passed me by too. I'm never going to communicate through gifts. I'm just not, I'm just not. And, and that's okay. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing it. I don't think there's anything. And, and but for me, you know, it's, uh, what, what's that famous, uh, Steve Buscemi, uh, 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 appearance on the sitcom that I think now has become a very popular gift of a guy pretending the old guy pretending to be a high school student. Like I'm not gonna do that. Like, you know, I'm not like for me, I have to communicate the way I feel comfortable. I'm 30 way- Rock. Yeah, I'm 30 Rock. Right, right, I'm 30 Rock. And thank you. And so like for me, <laughs> hello fellow teenagers, whatever <laughs> it says. And uh so for me, you know, that is that's 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 right because he's like the private eye on that right show. yeah that's right that's right <laughs> that's right I forgot that is funny um so anyway so the point is that doesn't he have a funny name he's got like a funny yeah it doesn't matter uh, 30, <laughs> 30 Rock was the last place before like old Steve Barton comedies and and, and Marx Brothers comedies that you get away with really funny names all the names are funny on Thirty Rock because everything was funny on Thirty Rock anyway oh, point God, is I miss Thirty Rock yeah see boy wait this is this is another good example of the generational divide ba- old baseball writers Seinfeld. <laughs> young baseball writers, 30 Rock. Parks and Recreation. <laughs> Parks and Recreation, exactly. I think it's Seinfeld. I think Seinfeld is funny too. But uh, uh, anyway, point is, you know, I think that, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to be holier than now than thou by saying, well, these old guys, they're not going to get what the young kids are doing. I don't always, I don't, I don't, listen, there are certain things that I'm not good at and I'm not, and I'm not going to try. You know, for me, I feel like my strength as a writer is to 
you know, try to be as nuanced as possible. I'm not good on Twitter. If you follow me on Twitter, you will see I use Twitter almost exclusively to to respond to readers, to communicate, to tell people whose stories I've liked that uh, that I like their stories, or to promote my stuff. Like I just don't. I and I, I understand that Twitter is the number one resource for journalists to talk to one another, <laughs> and that's fine and that's great. But I don't like I don't open TweetDeck when I turn on my computer. I don't constantly look at Twitter on my phone. I just don't. That oh doesn't God, mean I feel jealous of you. That, 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 right now. And for the record, that doesn't mean that I'm right. Like it probably means that I'm wrong. In fact, but I also am not. Like I'm just like I. I that's not what I do. <laughs> like I just I feel like for me I. One of the things I've noticed uh, a lot that's hap- that happens in media is, and this is not just sports. This is far from just sports. Uh, I think it's uh, I've seen it in entertainment and I see it in politics. Is people are writing stories off of Twitter. They're seeing they're getting everything off of Twitter. And I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings, but the vast majority of human beings are not actually on Twitter. The vast majority of your readers are not actually on Twitter. This is something that we feel like we have to be doing something. We have to be, you know, it's it, that Jones that that uh, journalists always had when they were in the newsroom. They had to feel like they were on it. Now there's this feed of crack that just brings you news all the time. 24/7. And that's fine. And listen, I read it too. I read it like for the record. If you you know if you if you were to go and look at my likes, uh, pull pull a uh, a Kurt Rambus on me and look at all my, <laughs> look and look at all my likes, you would see just how much I'm reading. Like I read that stuff constantly, but I don't really feel like to me. I no longer feel, and I really never did, that my instant reaction needs to be heard by a lot of people. I just don't. That doesn't mean, and I'm not when you say that. Uh, uh, there's always a, there's always someone, you know, it's the type of thing that's easily mocked because it's like, oh, well, look at you, Mr. Fancy Pants. No, I'm going to say something stupid. <laughs> like, I'm going to say something stupid and I'd like to take a second and like, think about it for a second. It doesn't mean that if you don't do that, you're doing anything wrong. You are a different human being. You are, you exist in an entirely different world than me. If it works for you, great. It's just not what I do. And, and I don't feel comfortable with Twitter that way. I just don't, I don't use it that way. I don't use it for quick observations. Uh, uh, in fact, almost always, even when I have something really funny and I say it, I often regret it, even if it's still funny, like three hours later, because it just feels like it was of that moment and already feels old and moldy. And I, what I generally want, I want to be able to look back on stuff that I wrote 15 years ago and not be embarrassed at. That hasn't happened yet, by the way. But uh, <laughs> but that's something that I want to be able to do. And for me, Twitter is so much in that exact moment that you know I use Time Hop um, uh, to like see old things that I've written or old tweets or old photos. And th- it's there's nothing more embarrassing than going back and looking at Time Hop tweets that you sent like six years ago. Like everything is stupid. Everything is stupid. <laughs> Everything that you thought was important is no longer important. Everything that you say is pointless. Everything you're responding to that you were so upset about, you no longer give a shit about. And it's all this. And, and so I have to say, I every single time I sit down to write something funny on Twitter, if I have a thought or something, I'm reminded of, you know what? In six years, this is going to seem stupid. <laughs> and, and so I don't. And I don't. And I have to say, I don't use Twitter in that way. And that's fine. That's great. I'm actually glad nobody, I'm glad so, not a lot of other people use Twitter that way, because then I get to read what they're saying. <laughs> and I get a sense for someone. But I also don't want to confuse, and this is a common, common thing for people that are on Twitter all the time. They confuse Twitter with real life. They think everybody is that instantly reactionary. They think that people, everyone is that instantly mean. They think that that the world is actually full of people ganging up on one another. 
and it's not, and it's just not. And you know, it's funny. I uh, I did one of my more recently heavily mocked. Uh, oh, I shouldn't have done that tweet, though. I still truly believe it. Moments was I, when I was in Iowa covering the caucus, and when I was at the Iowa caucus. It, you know, the Iowa caucuses, caucuses are so strange because you get all of these people into a room. It's not voting. Caucus, caucus is not a vote. You get all these people packed into a way too small room. There were, there were about 600 people in a room that holds 100, and they're all crammed against the wall, and there's Bernie supporters and the Bernie bros, and there's Hillary supporters and all of those people, and they're all crammed in this small space. And this is a very contentious first night of voting, very big deal. I've been w watching Twitter. I've been seeing these people screaming at each other constantly, every single minute, for, for months. And they all got in a room together, and they're like, okay, who's for Hillary? And then they raised their hand, and who's for Bernie? And then they, more people raised their hand. And then they had like a discussion with one another, and they tried to talk each other out of their view points and then at the end some people went to one side and some people went to the other and then they shook hands and went home because that's what real life is actually like that would never happen on twitter and i and i realized i've been looking at twitter too long i've been paying too much attention to think this is this cursory short impossible to actually get any actual nuance through their uh, way of communicating people is not actually how human beings communicate with one another and that's and that doesn't mean that twitter doesn't have a utility i look at it all the time but i don't feel like I'm contributing anything enough that I need to be engaged. So I use Twitter for promotion. So, but it's funny. So my joke, my joke with that, uh, uh, the thing I put on Twitter was, you know, I have to say, I'm really amazed to see all these people crammed in a room. It was a hot room. It was angry. You know, I, I, people, it was, it was a, it, people could have been really angry in there and it was packed and it went way too long and it was disorganized and exactly the type of thing where people would start yelling at each other and they didn't. And they all shook hands and they said, all right, let's all, let, uh, uh, where are you going to eat after this? And let's go get a beer. And, and I, I put like how impressed I was that people were cordial, people were kind, people were patient. And it's like, boy, it's almost as if the internet is not – it's almost as if real life is not like the internet and not like Twitter, which of course got a bunch of people, smug Cardinals fan. Look at this guy, best Twitter in baseball and all that stuff because I know that's how Twitter works and that's fine. I don't care. More power to him. But I also know that Twitter is not the way the real world is. And that's, <laughs> that doesn't mean Twitter is wrong. It doesn't mean Twitter is bad. I use it all the time. But it also doesn't mean that it's real right and and i guess that's the point i'm trying to make no i think it's really interesting i think you have a, a pretty particularly interesting vantage point having been someone who's kind of was in the middle of the the big shift from print to, to online and as someone who's kind of coming up in just the online age twitter has been really an inter a really great tool for me i mean i love using twitter and mom I'm, I'm probably on twitter way too much and i spend probably most of my class time on twitter which is not <laughs> the most productive use of my time but it's been really great for me just to not only just find new writers but being able to to connect with people if i i mean i mean there's no plausible way for me to connect with a bazillion writers across the country and you know network with people and and in in a in a narcissistic way raise my profile as a writer um without without the use of the internet and I, and I get it and I get it and I did the same thing I just Twitter was I would have been using Twitter the exact same way you're using it if it would have been around in 2001 in 2002 thank God by the way Twitter was done around 2001 oh <laughs> 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 oh my god I think about that all the time like oh man September 11th Twitter thank God um, but uh, if it would have been around 2001 2002 I would have been using the exact same way you were of course like there's nothing there's nothing wrong with it I know your work because of Twitter and there are tons of new writers that I discover through Twitter and tons 
tons of new voices and frankly tons of new perspectives like tons of new things that i that show the world to me in a different place in a different way than i would have thought of it otherwise and frankly as a guy that has two as a white guy that has two kids living in athens georgia that's a good thing <laughs> that's a good thing for me because i don't always i'm not I, you know i'm not always exposed uh, in my real life to differing viewpoints or I, I've exposed to different viewpoints but different type of people and different types of opportunities I just we live in only one place and Twitter allows us to get information from a lot of different places so that has been really important it's actually I think made me uh, a better person in a lot of ways and made me understand things a little bit differently by also but you know as with everything else you have to take all of this in context you have to take the good parts of Twitter and realize that it's not everything and for me that is that's important. And listen, I look at Twitter all the time. I, I, I probably overstate a little when I say that I don't, I don't just stop and look at Twitter all the time. I definitely don't open TweetDeck. But uh, I, it's always funny when I'll look at Twitter and everyone's complaining about something on TweetDeck. I'm like, well, there's, there's a very simple solution to that. <laughs> just don't use it. And just, just, look, just use the – I use the actual client on the actual page. I do not keep it open all the time. And I find – and maybe it's not probably helped my productivity. To be honest, I'd probably be able to get a little bit more work done uh, in that way. But that, again, that's fine. Uh, I'll put it this way: um, if I if I look at someone's Twitter and I see they have more than like a hundred thousand tweets, I feel like we're we probably not. <laughs> probably we're probably not going to be. Uh, uh, we're probably not going to be interacting on Twitter all that much. So, uh, but that's fine. Again, there's nothing wrong with this. I just think like it's just an important thing to always remember that Twitter is a supplement, a complement to the real world not the actual real world. Who are some writers that you've seen? I mean, you mentioned Lindsay, and I love Lindsay. She's she's awesome. But uh, who who are some other writers that you've seen who are, who've been able to use Twitter in a way to to you know I, I don't want to use the word brand, but like in, increase their profile yeah. in the journalism world. Oh well, you know, I think we talked uh, about Network earlier. I think Network is certainly on there. Uh, Concepcion, I think uh, 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 certainly he is a great example of it. Um, I tend to find people. That Andrew Sharp, when he was at Grandland, I think he's at SB Nation. I think where, he ended up with the Ringer. I forget. I think he's Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated. That's right. Uh, he's really good at it. He did it very. Uh, he did it very smartly. Um, Jeez, who who else is doing? I mean, like, uh, I mean, at this point, everyone. <laughs> like at this point, if you're not using Twitter in a lot of ways, you're not really doing it uh, the uh, the correct way. Um, let's see. Uh, sports wise, I mean, there's a lot of people, you know. But this, I have to say, the way that I don't like. Twitter is is um, when you throw down proclamations and then don't look at the response. <laughs> it's probably the best way to put it. It's the way that uh, it's uh, PR Twitter is probably the best way to put it. You know, I feel like uh, it's a way to interact and correspond with people, but not, you know, not a way to toss down proclamations. I guess um, I don't know. Perhaps perhaps that's an overstatement, but like. Are you looking more for people who, who 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 have promoted themselves through Twitter, or just people who have? I mean, just people who who you've enjoyed using Twitter as a kind of different platform, I guess. Oh, okay. Well, you you're an example of one. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, uh, I love the guy that does the uh, the WWE Subway. <laughs> that guy's pretty funny. Uh, that guy makes me laugh. Um, but you know. I'll say that the ones I find more purely enjoyable actually tend to be ones that are you that use Twitter in that regard, in that which is to say separate than their actual work and fields. Mm -hmm. Like I kind of hate when I think Bissinger may have actually, if I may harp back to that for a moment, Bissinger himself may have been a pretty good example of how I realize I have to separate uh, 
how how someone is on Twitter and how their work is when it's completed and edited and put together uh, in a lot of ways. And it always frustrates me that I'll read this really, really smart piece by someone and I'll be like, wow, that guy is, that, that lady's awesome. And that piece is so good. I want to go find out more about her. And so I go on Twitter and, and I see, uh, and I see them just, you know, it's spur- losing their mind. On Twitter, Stephen Roderick is a great example of this. Stephen Roderick is a really good journalist. I worked with him in New York Magazine. I think he's with uh, he's a freelance now. You see him from Men's Journal. He wrote the he's written some really good pieces. He wrote a really good book. Uh, he's a very smart guy, very good reporter, and a nightmare on Twitter, <laughs> like an absolute nightmare person. Like all of his insecurities come out, all of his fears, all of his like. It's hard for me to remember when I'm reading his work, which ostensibly is the reason that he's in the public realm. That I have to be reminded. Oh, right, like. I have to push that person he is on Twitter out of my mind so I can enjoy the work. That's using Twitter wrong <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. That to me – and listen, I don't know. People can use it however the hell they want. But for me as someone, I, it always frustrates me to see someone – the one thing I don't want Twitter to ever do – my work is my work. Like I'm work, like that is my statement. That is my public persona. It's my work. That's what I want people to read. That's what I want people to see. That is, it's something I've, I've, I've worked hard on. It's something my editors have been through. It's something we've been back and forth together. It's something we've actually tried to create and construct and put together in a way and present to people. Twitter is just a cough. Twitter is a scratch, uh, is a scratch of your ear. And so for me, I, what, what I feel sad about is when a writer likes, like Roger, who I like a lot, the, the, becomes this Twitter personality in a way that takes away from my I, I from the work which i think is 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 the point of what they were trying to do in the first place mm-hmm. uh so, so one of one of the things i find most interesting about your work is that you cover a really wide variety of things obviously sports politics movies uh how did you claire of... Mc... hang on claire mcnear there's another one that's really good i'm actually <laughs> looking through my twitter follow here she's really good too do you see the gronk boat thing did you see that yes i did yeah and it was really great because then she wrote a really good story about that, but she also had the story as they've told it along. It became this this ongoing story of what was happening on the Gronk boat that made me not only laugh while seeing it on Twitter, but also look forward to her actual piece that she was going to write about that. That's actually a great example. Okay, now I'm going to stop looking at my Twitter follow page and so <laughs> you can actually ask your question. Um, so you, one of the things that I find most interesting about your work is that you cover a really wide variety of things beyond just sports, you know, movies and politics. Uh, how did you kind of get into that work beyond just working for Deadspin? Yeah, sports, as I kind of mentioned when we talked about sports, uh, how Deadspin started, sports was always like what, maybe the third or fourth thing I was most interested in. So, And I love sports, obviously, and, I, and I've made a career out of it. I'm very lucky to be able to do so. But the idea that it's always baffling to me that I don't understand why anyone would ever want someone to stick in a lane. Like I don't know. I have no special – like, oh, Will understands five or six things about sports that nobody else understands. But then that's it. Like, I don't I, There's no special thing to me about sports. I'm just writing about sports because I like writing about sports and I like to think I can construct a halfway decent sentence about sports. So, therefore, I do that. And so, and, and I've, and because I care about it, I've researched it and I've tried to back up my assertions and, 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 you know, be a part of, of the world of it. For me, movies and politics, particularly movies, like politics, I'm new. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm good at politics yet. I'm trying. I'm having fun with it, but it's still so new. Uh, but for movies, you know, this is, you know, I love, I've loved writing about movies longer than I've loved writing about sports. So for me, you know, the idea that someone would just write one thing feels like a branding exercise rather than an honest portrayal of how someone feels about the world and what they want to do. Like I don't, you know, I, I, I hear this a lot. I've 
talked to, uh, I talked to, I've talked to like journalism classes and I feel like that gets overrated. Like, you know, I talk to journalism classes and I say, eh, work hard. Good luck. <laughs> you know, I feel like a lot of writers do that. I, they, they, I talk to young writers as a fellow craftsman and a purveyor of the art. I'm like, nah, I'm just an idiot babbling like everybody else. Uh, but I do, but one thing I, I do always kind of, that's always surprising is when they when when there's questions like that, like like wow, so you write about sports and movies? Is that hard? Like, well, I don't know. Is it hard to walk down the street and also drive a car down the street? <laughs> like, you know, th these are these are these things are connected. The, the the connecting is the writing. You know, it's not. And so, but I feel like a lot of times people are so caught up in branding and so caught up in being known as well. I'm the guy that no does this specific thing, and therefore I have to do that thing over and over and over and over and over and over. And th there, I found my niche, and that's what I do. Like it's a message. Like life is a messaging exercise, or something. And I don't. I don't really understand that. Uh, uh, for me, I'm a writer. If there's a message to get across, it's I write about things that I care about, and those are. And so I care about those things a lot. And for me, that makes it very exciting to get to do it. So I'm lucky. Uh, and also there's, you know, I need to challenge myself a little bit, you know, after a while, you know, every sports reporter will always tell you that, uh, you, you know, you, once you've done it for a few years, you start, you feel like you're writing the same story every once in a while. And I, I don't think I'm doing that too much, but it comes up. There are times it happens. And so for me, you know, to stay engaged and to make sure I'm challenging myself and pushing myself to try new things and to, and to, to be not afraid to fail, um, is, important and i think it's made my sports writing better uh to to look at things in a different direction and try different things so hopefully it's working in, in that way for me that's the important part you know the the idea that that someone you know that someone can do only do one thing and therefore should only concentrate on that that's why sports writers have such terrible taste in music and movies <laughs> and, and uh, think about politics because someone told them at one point just concentrate on baseball and then they were like but i'm listening to bruce springsteen right now does that mean i only listen to bruce springsteen and what came before that yes that's it and that's why that's why I that's why I think they only think uh, the, 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 a lot of sports writers are so culturally out of tune with what's going on is because, you know, they, they, they feel like they have to just be a sports person and stay uh -huh. in their lane. And I think that's silly. Yeah. I mean, as someone who's like eternally fascinated by movies and pop culture, like I've never really understood how, how people have been just able to cut themselves off from that realm. Like it, it's, it's always been fascinating to me to see just like all of the sports writers who were just obsessed with Bruce, Bruce Springsteen. And I personally <laughs> just like don't really understand the appeal of Bruce. Um, like I can appreciate the greatness of him as a live performer and his legacy, but I just don't understand the appeal of his music. Well, I see. I like Bruce Springsteen, but he, but I, that's not what they're they're not pro Bruce Springsteen. They are trying. They are. It's like an ethos. It's like an idea, and you know, and and I think they like the music too. But I think for them, and I just I like Springsteen, but you know, I mean, if you were to rank the, if I were, and I love to rank things, but if you were to rank like my fifty favorite artists, Springsteen would, if he made the fifty, it would be close. But, that, but you know, I like Springsteen. I have no issue with Springsteen. But the, I think the problem is is what if you what I think a lot of people, what a lot of sports writers say when they like Springsteen is I don't actually listen to a lot of music. Mm -hmm. I don't actually listen to a lot of music. Bruce Springsteen is a universal artist who a lot of people know. And at the time where Bruce Springsteen was popular or really popular, that's the last time I really paid attention to pop culture. It's the Seinfeld idea. Pearl Jam is the new version of this, by the way. Uh, the idea, like the last time, the, the thing that I cared about was popular was then, and then it froze. And listen, you know, I in a way, it's probably Nirvana... I uh, in college Nirvana, like I, I, I thought Kirk Cobain was a genius, and I thought Pearl Jam were hacks, and uh, and and you know, so for me, it's probably a good thing that Kirk Cobain killed himself. Otherwise, I'd be that guy 
being like, oh man, Kurt's got a new uh, acoustic album of him farting into a box. It means so much. It's so important. No, Kanye can't get this, man. I just hope I'm not this way with Kanye in 20 years. You are. You are. You're going to be. You're going to be. And it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's, 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 the, it's the circle of life, man. It's going to happen. You know, listen, uh, it's funny to me to hear, because listen, I'm talking to you and, you know, when Deadspin started, I, I would do podcasts, or uh, I guess I were pod, I would just do interviews, I guess is what we called them then. And it was all, you know, it was all, so what are the kids doing, man? What are they? And I'm like, I'm 30. Like, I don't know. <laughs> and, and, and the, you know, that that's the point, though, is, you know, the, all the things that I, like, I look at Twitter. Twitter did not really get popular until after I left Deadspin. So for me, it's still, you know, the thing that people often ask me about, and I think the thing that they know the most of me about, is something that is so old at this point that is before Twitter. So, you know, for me, uh, it's going to happen to you. It's going to happen to everybody. It's going to be, you know, the, the, and I feel like the best thing, the best thing anyone can do as they get older is just recognize that things were not better when you were 15 or you were 20, you were 25, they were not better. They were not worse. They were, they just were, they were just your thing. And at the time with, at the time where you were defining yourself as a person and deciding what was good and what wasn't good and what was important and what wasn't important that time when you made those major decisions that has frozen to you that as better or more important and Therefore, everything that comes after will afterward will feel silly and won't feel like it matters as much. And that's a natural human thing. It just doesn't make it correct. <laughs> it's probably the best way to put it. Yeah. Where, where do you where do you see yourself in like ten years? Where, I, do, you, where do you see Woolleach evolving into? I if I get all I ever wanted to do is write. Like it's all I ever wanted to do. If I uh, you know everything I do, I do TV stuff now. I do podcasts. It is all just in service of the writing. All I want to do is write all day. That's all I've ever wanted to do. That's it's, I've been. I'm so lucky. Knock on wood. If I if in ten years my life is exactly like it is right now, maybe I write for a different place, or maybe I write about a different thing, or maybe I do a little bit more television or a little less television. But as long as I get to write. I'll be happy. You know, that, that's why I, I said, I think in the wake of Deadspin, people thought I was some sort of entrepreneur or I was some sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, online visionary or I should be an editorial director somewhere. And I never had any interest in doing that. And I'm glad I didn't because if I would have accepted some of those jobs, I would have run those places into the ground because <laughs> I'd have been like, why don't you just let me write everything? <laughs> and that would have not, that, that would not be what you would want an editorial director to do. So that's what I want to do. You know, I know that's gotten a little out of style. And I know that, that particularly, you know, once you hit a certain age, you're supposed to graduate graduate up to being an editor or a managing editor or so on this. I just never had any interest in doing that. There's nothing wrong with doing that. That's great. But I got into this to write. That's what I wanted to do. And that's what I'm going to keep doing as long as they'll let me. Who are your writing inspirations? Who, who are the people that you look up to as writers? Now, I mean, it's, there's just so many. Um, here, I'll, I'll go over and look at my bookshelf uh, and just start rattling off some names. Um, David Marshall Wallace, Dave Eggers, Roger Ebert, Tom Parada, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Michael Lewis, Buzz Bissinger. Hey, there's Bissinger. Uh, Jonathan Franzen. Uh, no, not Jonathan Franzen. Jonathan um, uh, Lethem. Sorry. Um, yeah, I forgot. Like, all right. Franzen's kind of an ass. Let's go with Lethem. So, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, Lee Montville is a sports writer I love a lot. But there's just so many. I mean, right. I, I, you know, the problem with a list like that is uh, – it's like, it's like naming your favorite movie. Yeah, it is. It's hard, you know. It's hard, and 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 it's worth noting that you know there's, 
you know, I, I also listed like seven male writers, you know, right there. Like, there, like you know, there are tons of, you know, Jamie Attenberg is one of my favorite writers, you know, and there are, like, to me, like, this is, there's so many good writers out there and that, that question is so, like, I, if, the thing that I'm good at is reading and writing. So, you know, to me, that is, it's not like asking who my favorite child is, but it's asking, so what was your favorite place today where you breathed like what air did you enjoy the most for me to read and consume and to, to read all these different things it, for me is you know i mean the book i'm reading right now is i'm reading what it takes by richard ben kramer which i've read before but it's like it's getting me in the political mindset for me you know uh, a, a, a writer that you like that you get to keep coming back to is thrilling you know it's 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 thrilling to get to have that so you know uh, it's it's funny for me to it's it's an impossible question to ask without saying, you know, I, I like words. <laughs> uh, well, Will, thanks so much for the time. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Of course. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to me ra uh, ramble on. <laughs> My thanks to Will Leach for coming on the program this week. Hope you guys enjoyed our conversation. Uh, make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes if you haven't already or whatever you use to listen to your podcast. Make sure to leave us a rating as well. Uh, it really does help us uh, get the word out about the show and, and share it with a friend uh, if you guys enjoyed this podcast. Uh, if you guys want to follow Will on Twitter, he's at William F. Leach. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at I am June Lee. You can also follow the show on Twitter at BartoloPod. Uh, and uh, make sure to check out the Hall of Hardball Times. Lots of great stuff coming up on the website with, uh, with baseball season coming up up and uh getting getting rolling there uh so thanks again to all of you guys listening uh next week we have uh chad finn of the boston globe on the show and uh, we talked about sports media and things so make sure to tune into that one until next time guys i'll see you guys later